Today on the podcast, we have Joshua Barron. Joshua is an attorney with his own firm out in Utah. He runs SB Legal, and he's also an author of The Business of Criminal Law, which you can find on Amazon in the show notes, and in a forthcoming podcast under the same name, The Business of Criminal Law. So don't worry if you're not a criminal defense lawyer. This episode is not just about criminal law. We talk about the number of kids Josh has, which is 12. So we hear that story and how that developed. Uh, and his background is essentially, I didn't, he doesn't know I'm calling him this, the Doogie Hauser of lawyers. He, uh, very smart guy, very interesting conversation. Take a listen, I hope you enjoy it. And if you did, or even if you didn't, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. It really does help the show. Uh, and again, welcome to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. I'm your host, Josh Campson, and I hope you enjoy the show. Josh, thanks for joining us in Interrogatories. Thanks for having me. So good to have an excuse to chat with you. Yeah, this is a uh, this is our first Double Josh episode. So <laughs> um, I'm not sure if that's going to be too much Josh for the listeners or not. I mean, they can always tune out, but I don't think they will. I think it'll be an interesting conversation. Uh, although we're both named Josh and both practice criminal defense, we've got pretty <laughs> different backgrounds. And I think people will be interested to hear um, about your background and also your role as a consultant and all that stuff that we'll get into. Awesome. Yeah. Excited to be here. So you're an author. Uh, yeah. Is that when you're at a cocktail party or, you know, a social gathering, do you introduce yourself as an author or as a lawyer or as a consultant? What is, what are you open with? Yeah. I usually say criminal defense lawyer just cause it's like the, the simple one, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, the book took me like 20 tries over like four years to write. <laughs> and so um, it, uh, it was a painful process. So I think I try to kind of keep, uh, I try not to remember how difficult that process was. So I usually focus on the criminal, criminal side of things. So the book, and I mentioned it in the intro, but it's the business of criminal law. And I mean, it's about being a criminal defense lawyer and running a business and all that. And what made you decide, you know, eight years or so into your practice that you wanted to write a book? Yeah. I mean, I just have so much respect for people who can actually finish writing a book that I always kind of wanted to, you know, and um, like I said, I tried over and over again on kind of slightly different subjects and things like that. And then I realized there's really only one thing that I really know very much about, and it's running a criminal defense practice. So I figured instead of writing about something that would take tons of effort and years to research and figure out, I can, you know, just use what I'm already doing. And, and, uh, and that's sort of the, the test case for, for the book. And what was, well, let me ask, what were some of the things you almost wrote a book about? <laughs> um, I'm working on something now on referrals. Um, I'm a little bit obsessed with referrals. I was an advertising-based criminal defense practice for, for many years. And then uh, when COVID started, we switched. So that's always been in the back of my mind. Um, yeah, my, my business partner who I started my, my practice with is a novelist. And in 2017, he retired because the novels were so successful. So if I had like a nickel for every novel I started, um, but didn't finish writing, I would be, I'd be a millionaire. But, um, but he, he's uh, been very productive. He's published like 45 novels and, and they're doing really well. Now we say novels, but that kind of volume, are we talking romance novels? Are we talking uh, sci-fi? What's going on there? I mean, there's nothing he won't try. His most successful stuff has been sort of Grisham style uh, legal thrillers. Uh, before that, he did these very dark kind of serial killer books that were sort of like Silence of the Lambs, only like darker. So, yeah. And he's no longer your partner? 
No, he retired, um, let's see, four years ago. Uh, yeah, four years ago and uh, moved. And uh, I, if he wanted to come back, I would take him in a second. But um, he's making too much money writing novels and he's too busy doing it. So he's not really practicing law anymore. Oh, it's not a bad life. Yeah. So you wrote the book and then when did you become, you're also a consultant for other lawyers, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's been a really fun thing. I mean, I just, I think that, so I, I, I was a prosecutor for Salt Lake City doing, you know, municipal prosecution, mostly misdemeanor traffic stuff, DUIs, domestic violence, that kind of stuff. And, um, and I just had this like real desire to kind of own my own business. And, um, and so I happened to know about criminal law. And, and so I started a criminal law practice. My dad um, had his own business when I was growing up. My grandfather's an entrepreneur. So um, I was really excited to kind of jump into that. And so I think sometimes I uh, enjoy thinking about the business side of my practice at least as much as I do about the criminal side of my practice. And um, it's been really fun to help other attorneys think about how to grow uh, their client base, how to find the, the you know, better clients, um, clients that they can serve better and uniquely. And uh, yeah, I just love doing that and uh, just consulting for them um, in whatever way they, I kind of customize it to each, each person that, that wants help with that. And how do you balance the consulting side with the legal defense side? Um, I've been really fortunate that, you know, I've, I've kind of, I've gone down this journey that I'm sometimes helping other people with. And so I'm really fortunate that I really find these excellent clients, these clients that are kind of uniquely, that I know how to help and that um, I can help efficiently. So um, my practice is, you know, it, it makes me enough money, but it's not something that is like overwhelming my time. And so I just kind of fit it in and it's been a really, it's a nice change of pace. I do the criminal stuff and I really enjoy that. And then I do the consulting and I really enjoy that and kind of activates a different type, different side of my brain. So what's your breakdown? Like in terms of your time, are you 80% firm, 20% consultant? 50, yeah, I would 50? say that's about right. Yeah. 80, 20 is about right. Um, and yeah. And it kind of depends because there's the whole range. Like sometimes it's very informal. Sometimes it's formal and paid. Sometimes, you know, there's just um, a range of ways that I just help different people depending on what they're looking for. Um, and so like on LinkedIn, I post quite a bit about the business of criminal law. Um, but, and I also still get paid by LinkedIn. So I guess if you counted that, then that would increase it to, you know, 70% or something like that, but 70, 30, but anyway, yeah. So it's probably 80% criminal, 20% consulting. And are you doing, I didn't see like a, you're doing a YouTube channel or any of that? No, no. Uh, I just started a, a podcast called the business of criminal law, the same title as the book. And uh, yeah, so I, we've got eight or nine episodes scheduled, um, none recorded yet. And uh, it's going to be very narrowly focused. If you're not a criminal defense lawyer, you probably should not listen. To, I mean, anybody's welcome to, but it's probably not really for them. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm kind of excited about it and hopefully it can be valuable to people and help them get some good ideas for their practices. Are you going to have some kind of system set up so that prosecutors can't listen? <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's it, a way to screen people out or, you know, maybe put a couple of like trick things in the beginning so they think it's something really boring. <laughs> um, I mean, because it's so focused on the business side, I don't know what prosecutor would care about it unless it was a prosecutor who was thinking about jumping and, and starting their criminal defense practice. It will be as low as possible on technique, on cross-examination and things like that, and as high as possible on how to grow your practice and run your practice. So I doubt that prosecutors will be very interested in it, but I will not be screening them out. Okay. Apple doesn't right. give me that option. That's true. <laughs> they, they don't. They don't. So you, you mentioned your third generation entrepreneur. What did your dad and uh, grandfather do? 
my grandfather um, is just this amazing guy. He's uh, 89 and he, um, he went to pharmacy school because he couldn't get into dental school. He lacked the micro dexterity. They had this little micro dexterity test that he failed. So he went to pharmacy school, but he really didn't care about pharmacy. He wanted to have his own business. So he started a little pharmacy and that was kind of fun, but kind of boring after a little while. So then he started like a pharmaceutical supply company and it grew really big and ended up getting sold to a publicly traded company. Um, he's now a professor of pharmacy at USC in Southern California. Um, but yeah, so he did that for a long time. And then my dad and him had a real estate management company in Southern California um, when I was like five years old to 10 years old, something like that. That was a really nice, successful company. And I could tell my dad really cared about it. And uh, uh, he ended up leaving that when he was when I was 10 and becoming a teacher. But he always has that little kind of business side of his brain that he's he's always thinking about. Now, did you grow up in California? Yeah, I grew up in Southern California. Cause you're in Utah now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what took you, and we're, we're going to talk about, you know, your work as a missionary and all that, but what took you, <laughs> how'd you get from California to Utah? Well, um, it's kind of connected to that. So I took, uh, so I had kind of a funny background. So I, um, homeschooled from fifth to eighth grade. And then, um, my mom said, you cannot homeschool anymore. You're not doing any of the assignments I give you. So you can either go to college or high school for ninth grade. And I was like, oh, college sounds cool. So I went to college um, and graduated when I was 18. Well, and time out. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean? You just, you're just uh, 14 years old on a college campus? Yeah, yeah. And that's just a thing that they can do? Um, yeah, it turns out. I mean, so I went to the community college. It was a public community college close to my house. And um, basically, like, if you have a pulse, you're admitted. And uh, nobody knew how it was going to go, but it went fine. You know, I, I wasn't like blowing anybody away, but I was getting decent grades and things like that. And so then once I finished my associate's degree, I transferred. Well, to we're university. not, we're not done with that yet. So you're at the college. Are you going to college parties? Are you hanging out with college kids, dating college women? What's going on? Tell me like the <laughs> logistics of all of this. Um, I couldn't have been dating college women any less. I was uh, like, I, my first semester, I had this like gym class. It was called cardiovascular fitness training. It's the only C that I got in college. And um, I didn't want to change in front of people who are, you know, 10, 20 years older than me. So I just wore like Walmart sweats all the time. So that wasn't really attractive to the ladies. I didn't yeah. find um, so yeah, not dating them, but I did hang out with um, college age kids, you know, like, uh, um, I, I started playing guitar and I, you know, so I, I had a ton of discretionary time as a lot of undergraduates do. And so, yeah, I was just hanging out and playing guitar and, and, uh, trying not to fail my classes. It was pretty, it was dang fun. And, then, and so then I transferred when I was 16 to the university to Cal Poly Pomona. And, um, initially they rejected me because I didn't have high school transcripts. So it just looked like an incomplete uh, application, but I just didn't have them, you know? So I met all of their like admissions criteria, but I just didn't have that section filled out. So I had to call the Dean of Admissions every day for like three weeks and harass her until she admitted me. And then um, I graduated when I was 18, I was gonna be a history professor. So I was a history major. Um, but then towards the end of that degree, I just realized like, mm, that's not really, it's not like really a thing to be a history professor. Like it's, it's not, it's, it's more it's of a hobby. Pays well. Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> so I took the LSAT because there's no math on the LSAT. And then I left to serve a mission in Chile for the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I was in Chile for two years and I asked my mom to apply to law school for me while I was on my mission. She was like, Oh yeah, totally. Absolutely. So I gave her a list of 10 schools. I wanted to apply. My last choice was Brigham Young university in Provo, Utah. 
Um, and my mom was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then she only applied to Brigham Young. So, <laughs> so, uh, luckily I got in and, you know, like six weeks after I got back from Chile, I was, back, I was in class at BYU and, um, and then I met my wife during law school and she had a year left at Brigham Young at, B at BYU in Provo. So I took the Utah bar kind of last minute and, uh, here I am in Utah all We're these years later chop up that narrative for just a sec. So you're on, I'm, I'm going back to the college years. So you're an undergrad at like 17 on campus. Are you living on campus? No, no, I lived at home. So, uh, yeah, my, so my grandpa taught at USC and he kind of tried to get me to go to USC, but it was like an hour and a half drive. And I didn't really think I was ready to like live on campus or anything like that. So yeah, it was just, I was kind of limited to what, what schools were close, but luckily in Southern California, there's a ton of good different types of colleges and I, I found a nice fit. So you're, uh, you go to BYU, um, you meet your now wife and was she in law school or was she an undergrad? She was an undergrad. She was elementary education major. So you're not married to a lawyer. I am not married to a lawyer, fortunately for both of us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you also have a big family, right? Big family. That was definitely not part of the plan. But, um, so my wife was teaching, my wife is just like, an amazing person um, who would never do a podcast interview, but she'd be a fantastic podcast interview if she would. And she, um, so she was teaching in uh, Salt Lake in this, I think it's, it's a title, something title one, some, they got you know, a, a poor school in Salt Lake. Um, and um, she enjoyed teaching, but she had one of her students that was um, homeless and living with a, living in a car with his father. And um, she just loved this kid. He was a little bit of a troublemaker. Most other teachers at the school didn't really like it, but my, my wife just like loved him. And every day she had a story about him. So she got to the end of the school year and she said, I don't want to teach. I want to be a foster parent. So um, we did the foster parent licensing um, and started doing foster care. And so over the years we had, um, I think 30 kids come and live with us for different lengths of time. Some really long, some, uh, you know, some, some a year, plus and some, you know, a couple of weeks. And then, um, you know, we were, uh, you know, available to adopt any of them that couldn't be reunified with their birth parents. And so um, we've, uh, so we have 12 kids and um, three are biological and nine are adopted. And the last uh, kid that we adopted was the kid from that elementary school classroom who eight years later needed a place to live and came and lived with us. And uh, we ended up adopting him. So yeah, she's, uh, she's an amazing woman. Um, she also has a uh, bakery food truck with our kids. And so she's a, an amazing entrepreneur and that's been really successful. And um, she's just fantastic. Uh, how many bedrooms are in your house? So when we bought our house, we had adopted twins. And so we had two kids and my wife was pregnant and Ooh. we bought this house that has seven bedrooms. And I was kind of embarrassed when we bought it. I was like, like, are we just like, I, what is the point of this house? Like, I don't get it. And then within just like a few months of after um, my first biological son was born, a lot of the kids that we had fostered needed, needed to come back into foster care and eventually be adopted. So we went from like two kids to eight kids within a year. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That was a crazy year. That is, yeah. I mean, I thought going from one to two was tough. Yeah. Uh, and is she still working? Uh, so just this bakery food truck. So okay. she's actually right now getting ready to go to an event today. So, um, and yeah, works really hard at home and takes really good care of our kids. And I try to stay out of the way and help a little bit where I can. So what, what are the age ranges? Uh, so our oldest is 
20 and our youngest is three months. That's quite the range. Uh, good system for hand-me-downs though, I guess, right? I mean, you're really, <laughs> things we are really running the through, the, through the years there. Yeah. Um, now your wife's a baker. You seem pretty skinny to me. What's your secret? My mom's uh, a baker and I was uh, always fat growing up. So. I'm gaining weight as fast as I can, like, especially since COVID, like I just working from home and stuff. And there's always amazing, like our house smells like a bakery. Like she's always making brownies or, you know, truff, cake truffles, or she has all these amazing things. So I'm gaining weight as fast as I can. I think in a year, if you have me back, I will be double my current size. And is that, on, are you trying to gain weight or you want to bulk? No. Okay. All right. No. Are you, no. are you having the issue? I am where it's like, we're back from COVID courts are opening up and now I'm like, okay, these suits sort oh, of fit. 100%. No, no, no. Not sort of fit, like won't button. Uh, so I just had to go get new suits. I had one suit that I had bought during COVID that kind of fit me. And so I can, you know, at, at some point, you know, some courts are really busy and I'll be there a lot and, you know, I can't be in the same suit every single day. So I just had to buy new suits to accommodate my growth. Yeah, there you go. It's a personal growth. I think that's the way, that's the way to frame it. Uh, So I kind of interrupted your story, but you end up in Salt Lake, you take the bar and then you just end up in the prosecutor's office, right? Well, first I did real estate litigation in Park City and I couldn't have hated it anymore. It was my least favorite thing. And I was pretty sure like, I hadn't liked any of my internships in law school. So I was really scared that maybe I just couldn't be a lawyer and I hated this too much. And so I decided to try something that I would have never thought I would try. And I just sent out an application to a couple of prosecutor's offices. And the first one that interviewed me was the Salt Lake City Prosecutor's Office. They offered me a job and I was like, get me out of Park City. Yes, I will. I will do that. So I prosecuted for a year. It was fantastic. And uh, I'm really grateful for everything I learned that year. Um, but uh, almost immediately, the other prosecutors called me a defense lawyer as a joke or, or to tease me because they felt like my offers were too good and too generous and, and things. And so um, after about six months, I was like, wait, I think they're right. Like, I think I am a criminal defense lawyer uh, just by, by temperament. And I'd always wanted to try to have my own business. And so uh, me and one other prosecutor, my former business partner, Yosef Sharifi, we left and started our own little two-person shop. Now, do you think when you say you're a business, I'm not, when you say you're a criminal defense lawyer at heart and have that kind of temperament and that attitude, do you think the mission work plays into that? Or, or what do you think gives you that temperament? I don't think so. Um, I think that in, our, in the culture of, the, you know, of Latter-day Saints, um, the, it tends to be very like prosecution heavy. Like um, I think a lot of conservative religions kind of have a, a little bit of a, I guess I don't want to speak for all conservative religions, but there's a little bit of a bias towards prosecution and justice and things like that. And, um, and I just, I just felt a lot of sympathy for the criminal defendants, um, which was really surprising for me. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was just so powerful that I kind of had no choice. It wasn't uh, so much like a strategic choice as it was like, I can't do this forever, but I could, I think I could do criminal defense for a long time. And, and so that was in 2009, you know, so it's been 12 years and I can easily see myself doing this for another 12 years. It's been, it's been really fun. And how many people do you have now at your office? Um, we've been different sizes. Um, COVID, well, COVID was interesting because yeah, um, we, you know, the courts just shut down and I'm sure it was the same in Pennsylvania and 
and it was bleak for a few months, you know? So we, um, we were spending about $25,000 a month on Google ads at the time. And, um, the courts were just closed. Like, and so we weren't getting, so we, we were, we decided to shut off our ads pretty early on March 13th or something like that. And just to slow the bleeding, you know, and then, um, for, for a few years, since my partner had retired in 2017, I'd been trying to build referral relationships. Um, and I hadn't really known how to do that. I was kind of starting that from scratch. It's not something that we'd ever emphasized before. Um, and what was kind of exciting is once the courts started to open back up, the cases kept started coming back in, even though we never turned back our ads back on. And, and so since COVID, we haven't been advertising at all. Um, but cases have come. Uh, fewer cases, but better cases. And so we went from me and one other attorney to just me, and we went from four paralegals to one. Um, and that was a bummer because they were all fantastic. We didn't let them go because they uh, did anything wrong, but it was just because we were kind of a different business than we had been before COVID. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that. So you're moving from more of a pay-per-click Google ads kind of model to more of a referral. And I'm assuming when you say referrals, you mean just other attorneys or other professionals or what's your referral network like? Yeah, I would say 80% come from other attorneys. So that's definitely our best source. Um, there's some uh, like substance abuse treatment providers that are great sources. Um, and then there's just like random people that for whatever reason, uh, if they notice somebody has a need, they send them my way. And uh, you know, they're kind of in this kind of miscellaneous category where I would never have identified them as a potential referral source, but they've sent so many cases that I just kind of have been forced to, to see them that way and, and to appreciate that. And um, so, yeah, other attorneys are definitely our best source of uh, our largest source of, of referrals. And what's the rules out there? Are you allowed to give referrals to non-attorney referral fees or anything to non-attorneys? We don't pay any referral fees. Um it's an interesting kind of topic because so when I started doing criminal law, I thought referrals couldn't work for criminal because my best clients would rarely refer me because like, so if you're like a dentist who gets a DUI, you're not talking to your dentist friends and saying, Hey, you know, I got a DUI and this, you know what I mean? Like that's right. not a comfortable conversation. They kind of want to forget about me and never think about me or speak to me ever again, regardless right. of how grateful they are or how, you know, how, what a good experience they have. Um, so I, so that was my first thought. My second thought was, well, you got to pay referral fees and, um, and the Utah rules kind of really discourage that they've actually just in the last year or so been relaxed a little bit. So it's easier to pay referral fees, especially to other attorneys. Um, but something that I kind of have learned is that, um, paying a referral fee can kind of change the whole nature of the relationship. And the analogy I think about is like, if you and your family invited my family over for dinner and we had this great experience and you know, we talked about stuff and, you know, our hopes and dreams. We just had this amazing dinner. And then You're misjudging how big our house is, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> no one could invite my family. Yeah, me. that's true. Uh, but if we had this great experience and then while I was walking out, I was like, hey, Josh, thank you. And I gave you a hundred dollar bill. I was like, this was worth a hundred dollars to me. Thank you so much. It would really like kind of retroactively change that whole experience. Like it's just not socially appropriate in that situation. So there are people who will only refer to me if I pay referral mm -hmm. fees and I just don't work with those people. And then there's other people who, you know, really want to refer to who they perceive as sort of the best person. And sometimes that means me. And I'm really grateful for that. But I never try to say, hey, thank you. Here's a gift card or hey, thank you. Uh, you know, and it, you know, because if it could muddy their thinking about who is the, you know, the genuinely the best person. 
Um, like if my sibling was charged with a crime and I was trying to think of who to refer or recommend to my, to my sibling, um, I wouldn't want to have to sort out like, am I recommending this person because they're paying a fee or am I recommending them because I really believe that they're the best? And so, uh, yeah, we don't pay referral fees at all. I thought that that was necessary, um, but it hasn't been. We've been really fortunate. And nobody, I guess the people that have said to you, hey, where's a little little money coming my way? Because I'm not talking about a gift card. I'm talking about, you know, out here, most people, not necessarily criminal defense lawyers, but, you know, if you refer a PI case, they'll usually give you 20% that right? uh, of the award. So I'm not talking about like, hey, a bottle of wine. I'm talking, you know, if it's a $10,000 fee, that person's getting two grand. So it's a, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a significant amount of money usually. Um, but it sounds like that's not the norm even out there. Yeah. I think personal injury might be the exception. I think that there, it, it does happen a little bit more in personal injury. Um, I don't do it. So it's a little bit harder for me to say, but from the outside, it seems that way. Um, but so I think that might be one of the few exceptions, but like if I referred, um, you know, a friend who's doing like a software startup to one of my friends who does, you know, business entities and, I would never expect them to be like, well, this year they paid me 15,000 in fees and here's three grand. I would never really expect that. So, um, so I don't think that's the culture. I think that could be changing because the rules are changing, but for now it's not really expected. Well, that's good. Cause it's a pain to keep track of. <laughs> it's uh, it's very annoying to keep track of and, you know, but, but what's nice is as someone that refers cases out and then every once in a while you just get a random check in the mail. That's right. nice. Yeah. 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 But again, I think it's tough. Um, yeah, you just want to make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. It's funny how much mixed motives can be kind of a challenge when you're trying to serve people. And uh, and so, yeah, I kind of like that I don't, I'm not doing that, you know, that I'm not, that I'm not worried about the check that might come. Right. And I, probably more so in criminal defense, because if you're, you know, like if somebody refers me a case and we take, I'm sure like you, cash payment up front or whatever payment up front. So they get that payment like pretty quickly. Yeah. As opposed to if I refer out a PI case, I'm just getting a random check in the mail three years later. And I've already, I've already forgotten about it, you know, a week yeah. after I refer it out. So yeah. uh, it's just a different situation. Um, but that's interesting. Now, is that's not something, it sounds like that's something you've come to recently. So that's not something you discuss in the book. Yeah, the book was more based on advertising. Um, and so it has some, it, you know, it talks about referrals as like the goal, like this is the goal is we want to do this, but I didn't really know how to do it when I wrote the book. So that is, I think kind of a, a blind spot in the book, but it does talk about Google ads and, um, and, uh, you know, kind of the mass marketing stuff that some criminal defense attorneys try like billboards and things like that. And I am personally pretty opposed to it. I think there are some narrow circumstances where it can be done successfully, but I haven't really seen many of them. And so I kind of tried to push people in the book towards stuff that's very measurable, targeted, um, slow, you know, very fast response time so that you can tell what's working before you run out of money and go bankrupt. So I wrote a question down ahead of time to ask you, what would you change about the book, you know, in the intervening four years? But I think we've already got our answer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sort of working on the sequel and it's just going to be um, just really focused on uh, referral, referral relationships and, and building those and, and how to do that in a systematic way. And are you in any networking, uh, Groups like these formal groups, BNI, et cetera. Yes, I so and and I've learned a lot from BNI. Um, kind of what happened is when my partner retired, I kind of looked around and said, like, okay, I can have any practice I want now. It's not really like his vision and my vision and finding kind of the overlap. I can do whatever I want now. So, who's someone whose practice I want to emulate? And there was this attorney named Aaron Millar 
who's a divorce lawyer. He doesn't do the same kind of work I do, but he doesn't advertise at all. He has a small shop, like it's him and a paralegal and maybe one or two kind of contract attorneys. And, and, uh, and I was just really jealous of his practice and he seems to really enjoy it. And he had invited me to BNI and I was like, thumbs down on BNI. I was like, this is not for me. But I was like, I just want to, I'm just going to do whatever he does. I'm going to copy him. So I joined this BNI group that he's a part of. And uh, my particular group happens to have a lot of really busy, successful attorneys. And so I've gotten amazing referrals from my BNI group. And it taught me to be a little bit more kind of consistent and deliberate about building referral relationships on a, on a regular basis. And are you still in it? Uh-huh. So how many lawyers are in it? Because the ones I've looked at or considered, it's usually like, I'm either the only lawyer and then it's a lot of uh, HVAC people <laughs> or, uh, you know, there's maybe one family law attorney, but that's yeah. pretty much it. But it sounds like yours has a, everyone's really chopped up in their niches. Totally. Yeah. There's, I, I don't want to forget anybody, but probably eight to 10 lawyers. I that's a say. lot. Yeah. And, you know, as you know, you, are you a BNI member? Or no, no. There's the, out here, you know, there's two groups, one near my house and one near my office. Um, and I've met with them, but the issue is, I mean, right now they're virtual, so it's a little yeah. bit easier, but they yeah. meet in the morning. Oh, the time. Oh. And, and I don't mind, I'm a morning person, but the problem is we got two little kids. So I got to get them up, get them dressed, get them to school. Uh, so it's just tough logistically. My wife, Monday nights will be like, oh, tomorrow. Cause I have Tuesday mornings as our meeting. She's like, oh, tomorrow is BNI. Uh, you can't help at all. You're going to BNI. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, what's cool about BNI is it's one, like, so there's not, there can't be another criminal defense lawyer in my chapter. Right. And so um, we have a real estate attorney and we have a personal injury attorney and a family law lawyer and, you know, just all these different other practice areas and none of them do what I do. And so it's a very natural, easy referral for them if they run into somebody who has a criminal issue. Right. And have you hired anyone, any like uh, home improvement or, you know, electrician or anyone from, from the group? Yeah, I, absolutely. So we started the food truck probably eight months or so after I started BNI. And like when you start a food truck, like you need insurance and you need, we needed, uh, there's an employment lawyer in our chapter. And so we needed advice from him. So we used like everybody in our chapter almost within, you know, that six months of starting it. And it was super useful just to have people that payroll people, like just people to call and everybody is very generous with their time. So it's very interesting. You know, I think um, when people hear about the networking and the BNI, there's, you know, a hesitance, but I, I think it's, I like hearing people's stories. That's why I started the podcast. So I think even meeting these people um, in the group and, and learning about what they do and their practice areas or their professions and, you know, getting to know people is very interesting. It's just the logistics. We'll see. Uh, yeah. I think once the yeah. little one's a little, you know, she's five months old. So once she's a little older, it'll be a little easier. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It's got to be right. I, I think some people think BNI is right for everybody. I'm definitely not. I think it's got to be, you know, certain people it works for. It's about 20% of my business comes through BNI. So it's not nothing. It's definitely worth the time and effort for me, but um, I also have to have other things going on. Right. What are the other things going on? Um, so, you know, some of it's just doing things that I already like and just doing them more deliberately. And so like, I'm a huge lunch person. I love stopping my day and taking a two hour lunch and chatting with people. It's just my absolute favorite. So I used to feel really guilty about it and um, feel like it was like distracting me from my work. But I just realized if I'm going to lunch, especially with other attorneys who don't practice what I practice, 
it, like I, it's one of the best business development activities that I can do. So I couldn't spend too much money on lunches without, you know, it just, it just works. I never ask for referrals. I never pitch anyone. Um, it's just a very, you know, I just try to have a fun, interesting lunch with people and it leads to business. Well, plus right now it's fully hundred percent tax deductible. <laughs> I don't ever know the tax reasons. I know almost nothing about taxes, but I give all of my receipts to my accountant at the end of the year. And then he tells me how that works, but yeah, because yeah, of COVID I, they made it to, it's a hundred percent deductible. So that's just oh, a good. bonus. Yeah. Good. I, before, so during COVID I couldn't, obviously lunches were really hard. And so, um, I started doing LinkedIn more during COVID as a way to kind of continue to socialize with other attorneys that I couldn't see in person as much. And have you been enjoying that? I do. I see your posts and sometimes I comment. They're, they're fun. I let, you know, it's almost, uh, it's almost like Facebooky. You're pretty, you're, you're really on top of it. I try to post every day. Um, and it's been kind of a fun part of like the writing process for this book to like kind of test out ideas and to, um, you know, kind of like flush out all the, like the surface level ideas I have and see if there's anything below it or if I just need to be done. And uh, yeah, it's, I've enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, it's obviously a balance. And, you know, sometimes I can get a little bit weird about refreshing and seeing if I have new comments and things like that. But, um, but no, it's been really great. And I've met some just fan fascinating people um, from all over the United States. You and I met, I think, because you were doing writing for lawyerist at the time. Right. And I think it's just so cool how like the internet will introduce people that have no other way of possibly being on each other's radars, you know? Yeah. And so that's been really fun. And even though I can do in person now, I have a lunch meeting today and I'm excited for it. Um, I'm going to keep doing LinkedIn because it just gives me uh, the ability to interact with people that I wouldn't otherwise. And how are you doing on TikTok? Uh, not on TikTok yet. My kids all want TikTok on their phones so far. I think one of them has persuaded me. The rest don't have TikTok. So I've never been on the TikTok website. That's how old I am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm the same age and I have, uh, I had a TikTok. I tried it during the pandemic. My wife says I'm horrible at lip syncing. Um, <laughs> and then I kind of ran out of ideas. So after four videos, I ran out of Hamilton songs that I could turn into uh, <laughs> law related videos. So then it kind of died on the vine, unfortunately. Yeah, you, just weren't look, you weren't looking hard enough. Hamilton is rich material. You can you can turn a lot of parodies out of Hamilton songs. Well, the trick is though, it's to not do the parodies because then I have to sing. So it's <laughs> taking the existing lyrics and applying them to like a legal scenario. Mm. Um, I mean, I think five videos from a, from a musical was okay or four, whatever I did. Uh, people could check that out. I'll, put, I'll pop it in the show notes. I'm so excited to see you lip sync. I'm, yeah. I'm in. Um, so Josh, now is the time in the show where we go to a little bit of a lightning round, although the, the answers don't have to, um, be short answers, but I've got a list of questions here that I ask pretty much every guest. The first one oh. is the most important, uh, which is this, what is your opinion on the Oxford comma? Do you <laughs> use it? And do you require the people in your office to use it? Um, the only formal grammar I know is from uh, learning Spanish. So like I learned a lot about English grammar from learning Spanish. Uh, I think I know what you mean by Oxford comma. And I would say that I am a huge fan and I always use the Oxford comma. I this don't is the third I, comma. So it's like Josh comma, Josh comma, and Steve. Yeah. I always use the Oxford comma. Um, I'm pretty uptight about like formatting things uh, when my paralegal writes stuff and things like that. 
but I don't think like so fonts I'm really you know obsessed with and formatting issues, but I haven't I, I don't think I've convinced her to use the Oxford comma. So I always use it 100% of the time and my paralegal pretty much never uses it and we just coexist. Wow. A house divided, so to speak. Yes. Have you read Topography for Lawyers? I haven't. That sounds fantastic, though. It's the nerdiest. It's just, it. it's just so nerdy. Um, it, and uh, I just, I love that stuff. What's your font of choice for your briefs and pleadings? What do you have requirements out there? Uh, so it used to be Georgia, but I realized that Georgia looks great on the screen and looks terrible printed. Um, and then I switched, I use a lot, of, I use a lot of Google Docs now. So I switched to uh, one of their Garamond font. I forget what it's called. Um, the problem with their Garamond font is that their paragraph symbol, we have to use the paragraph symbol when we cite to Utah cases in, in you know, here in Utah. Um, and their paragraph symbol is bonkers. It is terrible. So I just switched to Meriwether and it's kind of too big, but eh, it's okay. I'll, I'm using it for now. I like to change it up every now and then just for variety's sake. Yeah, I'm a big Baskerville old face. That's mm. my font of choice. This this really got nerdy. This got real nerdy real quick. <laughs> have you ever have you ever taken a book Antigua little tried that out? That's that might be one to try sometime if you No. I'm gonna I'm gonna jot it down though. I like I like uh which one did you I said book Antigua. Which one did you say right before that? Uh, I said Baskerville old face. Baskerville. I like these subtle serif fonts. Like I, I'm not a sans serif guy, but I don't want the serif fonts to be like, you know, one of the handwriting fonts or something like that. Right. So something like, too crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, well, plus I'm the a, course would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, I teach a paralegal class. And uh, one of our rules is if you give me something in comic sans, you just fail the whole class. You not only do you fail the assignment, you fail the whole class. Yeah. But if you learn one thing in my class, it's not to use comic sans. Yeah. Well, we'll have to do a whole separate episode about uh, using styles in Microsoft Word and uh, uh, all that kind of stuff. Heck yeah. Uh, so totally unrelated to that. And I don't have a good transition like some of these professional podcasters do, but <laughs> do you have any superstitions? Um, it's funny cause I generally say that I'm not superstitious, but I would never like, um, rent an office on the 13th floor or something like that. So I'm sort of like, it's not something I think a lot about, but like, if I have the chance to avoid some of the common superstitions, I almost always do. So I guess I am pretty superstition. I'm superstitious, but I'm in denial about it. And do you have anything that you do um, in terms of work? So some people always wear the same tie the first day of a trial or the same socks for the closing or the same underwear the whole week or whatever the case may be. <laughs> it doesn't have to be clothes related. Those are just the ones that came to mind. Uh, none of those. I'm trying to think of some of my trial habits that, you know, we haven't, we're just starting trials back up right now. So it's been a while since I've done a trial, but uh, one of my rules is I can eat whatever I want during a trial. My, that's um, my rule too. <laughs> Chinese food during trial prep, that is key. Yeah. For me, it's a Coke at lunch. I almost always get a migraine during during a uh, uh, trial. And so like I usually avoid caffeine because it makes it so that I have fewer overall migraines. But if I want a Coke during a trial, I'm, I permit myself. French fries. And then, and, and then it's a lot of the court reporter. Uh, Mr. Barron, can you please slow down? Because <laughs> you're all wound up. It's true. It's right. I'm very sensitive to caffeine. And that's good when I want to get rid of a headache. And it's bad the rest of the time. So Yeah. What's something you hate, but you wish you loved? Oh, something I hate. that I, I, I wish I liked to-do lists. My wife is a big to-do list person. 
Um, I will occasionally like for a week, try the to-do list system. And, and I almost always like get way more done that week, but then also just hate it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I wish I was more kind of disciplined about that. My wife is like the least lazy person I've ever met. And I'm one of the most lazy people I've ever met. And so that's a difficult, uh, merging of life philosophies. So I wish I was a little bit more into to-do, to-do lists. So if you don't use to-do lists, how do you keep, I mean, you've got two businesses going on, you've got a podcast starting up, you're writing, but how do you keep track of everything that you have to do? Yeah. I just have to like disguise the to-do list. Like if I feel like it's a to-do list and I hate it, but, um, like I use a lot of pin notes in the, um, uh, Apple notes, uh, app. And so, um, it's not so much a to-do list as like ideas for stuff I could write about and like you know, projects I could do and people I want to talk to. So it's not like a to-do list. It's like a, like fun ideas list, you know, and that is enough of a disguise that I'll, I use it pretty consistently. But um, yeah, I, it's, I mean, I do, I'm pretty conscientious. So I rarely like miss deadlines and things. So I must have to-do lists, but I just convinced myself that they're not to-do lists. So that I or they're in your head. Uh, I have such a bad memory. I can't rely on it. Uh, I know that feeling. What is something that people are obsessed with, but you just don't get the point of? Funny enough, I would probably say social media. Um, I saw that coming. (laughs) I'm not, it's not that I, like I've used Facebook quite a bit in the past, not like professionally, but like I have enjoyed Facebook and wasn't a huge poster, but I would post and I was a big liker and commenter. And um, I just like had a hard time carving out the time that I wanted for other things. And sometimes the social media time would, take that over. So I read deep work by Cal Newport and he kind of suggested kind of reevaluating that he's not completely anti-social media either, but, um, he just said, you know, maybe take a look at it. And so I stopped doing Facebook and my life immediately got better. So, um, I don't know if obsessed is the right word. Cause I don't think most people are obsessed with Facebook, but they are, uh, consistent about it. Maybe, maybe should think about it. Yeah. Um, this is one I'm curious to hear your answer to what's the weirdest tradition your family has. Oh my goodness. Um, when my, when I married my wife, uh, I was just shocked by how often she used the word tradition. I'm sure my family has lots of traditions, but we just don't formalize them and like they're flexible and we get rid of a lot of traditions too, but her family, like so many traditions. So one of the things they do is every year they go to fish Lake, which is a lake in Utah and it's beautiful. And there's a national forest there. And the only thing you can do on this lake is fish. You can't swim in it. You can't water wakeboard on it nothing and i hate going to fish lake so we go to fish lake every year we stay in these cabins that are like way below my standards they are just not good enough they don't have air conditioning for example and uh so i don't know if it's a weird tradition but it's one that we i you know it's it was like in my prenup that we have to go to fish lake every year and i am desperately looking for a way out of that out of that agreement is it really in your prenup no. You don't, okay. Okay. I, I, I was in a feminist legal theory class when uh, my wife and I got engaged. And so I offered her a prenup and it was going to be a very, uh, her favored prenup. And she was very upset by that. That was not a good uh, move. She did not appreciate the gesture. So we do not have a prenup. Fair enough. Um, here's the last question. And uh, it's one that most people have, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to jinx it, but what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, my dad is an, uh, is a, is like a very consistent exerciser and I'm not like he works out every day. Um, and recently, you know, he recently, he said, do something. 
And I think I've kind of applied that in my life in a lot of places where sometimes I get so interested in trying to find the perfect thing to do that I'm kind of like paralyzed, like trying to decide to do this plan or that plan and in my business as well. But a lot of times if I just, if I want something to happen and I'm not doing anything to get there, doing something is like a billion times better than doing nothing. And then you can kind of adjust later. So just the idea of like, start, do something, and then you can always kind of tweak it later and make it a little bit better. Josh, thanks for coming on. Where can people find you if they want to get the book or, you know, read your posts or check out your podcast? Yeah, LinkedIn's probably the easiest place. Uh, it's just under my name, Joshua Barron. And um, yeah, we've got this podcast launching in August called The Business of Criminal Law. Hopefully it will be, it's most places now, it's not on Apple Podcasts yet, but hopefully it will be by the time we launch. We're just in the approval process, dang Apple. Yeah, well, I'm sure you'll get approved. I'm sure it'll be excellent. Um, looking forward to listening and I'll uh, be talking to you soon. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This podcast is a production of the Montgomery Bar Association in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Views expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and not their employers or the Montgomery Bar Association. No content in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Interrogatories, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us that five-star rating and review. For more information, visit us at www.montgomerybar.org.